0: November nineteenth, two thousand twelve. It's the creative process. All right, lift off, and the clock has started. I'm your host, Jared Ponchat. I'm the creative director at Lullabot. I'm here along with Jeff Robbins, who uh, is a former musician, or I guess still currently a musician, uh, a web guru, he's been in the web a long time, Created, helped create one of the first um, commerce websites on the internets, uh, and is also the CEO and founder of uh, Lullabot. That's,
1: that's an impressive intro.
0: Oh, I know. I, I try to make people sound awesome, even the co-hosts. Yeah, we're going to do that every week. <laughs> A uh, little moment of business here. Uh, Lullabot does support this podcast, and Lullabot is hiring currently. We're looking for people who have talent in Drupal development, as well as uh, just front-end developers. So if you are one of those, feel free to go to lullabot.com jobs and see if you have interest. And we're also here with uh, Aaron Walter who is the, let me get this right, uh, lead ex- user experience designer. I always thought you were the creative director, uh, or I'm not sure what your title is. In your website, you say lead user experience designer at the Rocket Science Group, um, and they're the people who make MailChimp. Um, he also formerly taught interactive design courses. He taught at the Art Institute of Atlanta, here where I live. Uh, he taught at University of Georgia. He's taught at Temple, I believe. I'm trying to remember all the things that I've found on you. Uh also a member of the uh, Web Standards Project and helped develop the Interact Curriculum Project, which is an open source curriculum uh, to help bridge the gap between people working in the web, web industry and education. Uh, wrote a book recently called Designing for Emotion, which is a great book. I recommend you go buy it. Uh, it's uh, at a abookapart.com. Um, and yeah, I think it's going to be great to talk with him. Thanks so much for being on the show, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's just jump right in. Um, One of the things that I had written down that I've always been kind of curious to talk to you about, Aaron, is uh, your book, Designing for Emotion, uh, and just a lot of the times I've heard you speak. You talk a lot about delivering personality uh, within products on the web, uh, mostly on the web, but I I imagine that you could run a process that would help deliver that across all kinds of products. And I'm kind of curious if you can talk a little bit about. Creative process and just how how you uncover personality, um, and maybe a little bit of history. Like you, the Rocket Science Group. I, I'm not sure how long you've been there, but as Mailchimp began began becoming what Mailchimp is today, uh, what was that process like uncovering the personality of what Mailchimp is?
2: Yeah, so I started uh, I started at the Rocket Science Group working on Mailchimp in 2008. Um. And I I've been a, a Mailchimp user since 2005. I was really liked it, and uh, I was a you know a professor. I was teaching um, a lot of different courses about history of communication, media, and interface design, uh, usability, and I was teaching this class called findability, and it was about how to help people find the things that you make on the web, and. Um, it wasn't just, you know, there was some talk about like search engines and how they find you, but that was just a small piece. And, uh, uh, one of the pieces was about creating a list and, uh, creating blogs, that type of thing. But, you know, being able to communicate with people, great content and how having really great content can draw people. in. And, uh, so that was how I started using MailChimp, um, in 2005, uh, and so we, our, our CEO, Ben Chestnut, he was a, a guest speaker in my class a lot. And we would actually do like beta testing of some new stuff, new features and stuff in MailChimp. Uh, my whole class would, would test things out. So I got to know him uh, through that. And long story short, I ended up in 2008 starting at MailChimp. And so when, when I started, there was a, a bit of a, a fork in the road that we faced that MailChimp, although it'd been around for a few years, it was just, just a just three people primarily, um, working on it and trying to make a go of it. Um, rocket science Group started as a design shop mm-hmm. and, uh, started making email, you know, doing email design and, uh, marketing for clients. And, uh, so they decided to make a little product or make a little tool basically to make that easier for their clients. And then that turned into a product. But the thing that i always loved about the product even in its early phases when it was you know very uh basic uh, was that i could see the people that made the software you know when i was interacting with that software i could see those people there mm-hmm. um and you know there's a sense of humor there was a sense of humanity uh, there was a personality that was present um and as the product you know they were trying to take it further and uh mature it and you know a name like mailchimp is uh it's kind of goofy it's mm-hmm. uh it's sort of a funny name
1: and yeah makes it stand
2: stand out um and it was starting to shift towards uh, being more corporate uh, and my feeling was the best thing that mailchimp had going for it is it didn't look or feel like any of the competitors it was It was weird
0: yeah that was a time in the web when when generally once once you started at least my memory of making things at that time was i would make something and intentionally try to make it seem like and feel like it was made by some giant company and it was this successful legitimate product therefore it didn't have the personality of a small team or
2: yeah (laughs) and and for me you know as starting from a customer and then moving into a team where I'm actually working on the product and the brand and stuff, I felt like that was the best asset you know, to shape that personality. So um, in 2008, we rewrote every line of code, redesigned every screen, and just kind of restarted and created a V2 of, of MailChimp. And as part of that, I really wanted to try to push that personality more um, to uh, see what we could do with that. And I started with this you know, a couple small experiments. And part of it was, you know, creating personality through copy. Um, the, the, way that the application talks to you, it felt like, you know, like you would talk to someone else at a, at a party or at a social gathering or something. Uh, it, it felt very human. It would use contractions instead of saying, mm-hmm. cannot, we'd say can't, um, you know, talking like we would normally talk to one another. Like right. we're talking right now. Um, and I experimented with this little thing, you know, so Freddie von Chippenheimer the fourth is uh is the mascot, is, mm-hmm. is the male chimp. And he appears at the top of uh almost every page of the app where he just says something that's kind of humorous, witty. Sometimes he links to a, a YouTube video that's funny. Um, and if you see that and you think it's funny, great. And if you don't, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um and I experimented with that like what what would happen with this uh, if we if we did this? I knew that I didn't want Freddie to give you stat or say you're logged in or any kind of user feedback because then he starts to bleed into Clippy, the office assistant. Right. You, <laughs> remember that? Yes. Do you uh, want to do you want to write a letter? Do you need help? Yeah. So it's, you know this character that always steps in the way. Uh, this idea was. Uh, Let's make this application functional. Let's make it usable. And then let's add some sense of pleasure and joy and humanity to it on top. Um, that is, uh, it should never interfere with the functionality and usability, that the, the core workflow that, that users have to move through. Um, and so what I found by that one experiment is we got a lot of uh, really positive feedback and it started to shape customer behavior that when they would talk to us, um, in, uh, like support chats and stuff, they would make jokes and they would talk to us, you know, like we were at a social gathering together. Mm -hmm. And basically they were mirroring our behavior, our behavior to them shaped the behavior of the users back to us. Mm -hmm. And when people are in a positive mood like that, it's easier to help. It's easier for them to solve a problem. I mean, if you think about, if you're in a very stressful situation, if your brain is, you know, kind of in a, in a stressful state, and you have to solve a problem, it's going to be a lot harder for you because your brain is not comfortable. It's not going to naturally be creative. It's trying to just operate. You, you're you move from cerebral cortex thinking, problem solving to, your, uh, you know, brain stem to just like I need to react. I need to fight or flight. Solve something. Right. Um, so if if we could make people feel these positive feelings, um, they can solve problems better so it's something i, I know that is uh it's, it's sort of a usability effect it's an emotional usability effect that when people feel good uh, they perceive uh, uh, interactive design as more usable and did did you just
0: discover that as you began doing this or you know sort of following your gut that the right thing was to do was to maintain this personality because you liked it as you were a user there uh or ha- did you go into it having done some research or feeling like you you knew oh this is what happens they're going to
2: mirror this back to us I'm j- that the psychology behind it I did not know what but mm-hmm. I did know was that Mailchimp stood out from its competitors because it was just being human and personal. And that made me trust the brand. I, at the time like in 2005, when I was a user, there were other options that had, uh, the other apps out there that had more features and could do more for me. But mm-hmm. I didn't really care because I liked the personality of the brand so much that I, I just stuck with it. Um, and so seeing that from the outside, I felt like that's something to follow. But when we started to try to push that a little bit more and explore that more, the, the psychology aspect started to reveal themselves, and mm-hmm. you know, I started to research and learn more about psychology and uh, about uh, you know priming that we shape this behavior. Um, you can basically shape someone's behavior by suggesting it, um, making a subtle suggestion to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that obviously serves business goals. That if you create a positive emotional experience for people, they will remember you for a longer period of time. That uh, emotional experiences, whether they're positive, negative, uh, they in our brains are closely connected to long-term memory. So you remember your first kiss, right? I mean, because mm-hmm. that was a that's a that's an earth-shattering, crazy moment. It might have been a really wonderful moment, or like very scary and super stressful uh, as it was for for many of us <laughs> but but you remember that and it's because it's our evolutionary way of protecting ourselves and shaping our future if we have a positive experience remember that so we can repeat that down the road if we have a negative experience definitely remember that so we don't get injured or hurt going uh, forward right so these are things that, that I kind of discovered as we experimented with more and more of this. And sometimes it's like really simple stuff, uh, you know, like under the send button. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that's a very stressful moment for a lot of people. So there's just a small copy that says, this is your moment of glory. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, a little bit of positive emotional reinforcement that says, it's okay to push this big button. Here we go, it's going out to thousands of people. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. And it changes a stressful situation into a confidence-building situation.
0: Right. It's you sent you have an email list that i I've, I've been a part of, and you sent an email recently talking about uh, speaking to the I believe they're called the MyGov UX team. Yeah. And, and I found I went and I've read a bunch of stuff about them now, and I found it fascinating, both encouraging that that's happening, but fascinating because. Th- I think people who have maybe heard a little bit of what you've been talking about with emotion and design and personality and design personas and these kinds of things think maybe of, well, the goal is just to have, you know, oh, I'm supposed to find little Easter eggs and they're all supposed to be funny, chimp like jokes and things like that. Um, but personality, sometime, um, sometimes the personality of the product or the organization or something actually needs to be very, say – trustworthy and uh not at all like there i'm i'm just thinking of examples where i don't want people to i remember a flight that i was on recently and uh the the way the stewardesses were making jokes during certain things made me kind of uncomfortable because i thought you know yeah. I'm, I'm about to climb into a metal tube and have it hurtled through the air by people i don't know and <laughs> i don't really want them having fun with this thing um yeah uh I'm just kind of curious whether what what that was like to work with my u x and and those over maybe maybe their persona actually is very humorous i don't know it just made me think a lot about yeah you know, personality doesn't just mean Freddie the chimp um,
2: yeah, and that's been a hard thing to communicate um, you know because there it's it's harder to find the examples where there's a Clarity and personality for a product or a service, um, but it's it's not centered around humor. But so a little bit of the backstory about MyGov. Um, so the the CTO uh, f- for the White House, um, uh, Todd Park, is uh, he's um, it's got this mandate to basically use technology to, um, change the interaction of citizens and people in the United States with the government. Mm. And part of that, uh, mandate is, is what spun out of that is, uh, a, a project called MyGov, which is trying to unite all of these different agencies, governmental agencies. So there's like secretary of state, uh, you know, there's, uh, uh, sometimes there's like Homeland Security and, and all these different uh, branches of the government that we end up interacting with. And a lot of times the interaction with the government feels very, uh, it's bureaucratic, it's limiting, it's constraining, it feels like Big Brother. It feels...
0: Mm-hmm. It's spread, it spread across maybe five different organizations that I have to go get paperwork through just to yeah. get my driver's license or something.
2: Exactly, yeah. and And so we all, we just came out of this election, you know, we spent this whole year hearing about politics and there's this vitriol and this back and forth in politics. And, the, you know, so pe- the way people think about the United States government right now, it's, it's a big conversation that's happening. And mm-hmm. I was fascinated by what uh, the MyGov team was was doing because they were looking at personality and they were looking at user experience as a way to mitigate some of those risks and challenges. Uh, and they were trying to create a personality for MyGov that was clear, and um, you know, maybe helped overcome some of the skepti- skepticism um, that people bring to governmental um, interaction. So, this is the part that blew my mind: is that uh, they're trying to create this personality, and so they they researched at the Library of Congress what's the history of how the United States government has talked to people, talked to citizens, and immigrants and, you know, people in the country that want to join the country. Uh, and so they looked at all kinds of stuff. They looked at very early, like rare documents uh, from the uh, you know, mid-1700s. They looked at uh, – they got private tours of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence. Um, they looked at all kinds of these amazing documents that shape this country as, as flawed and, and problematic as it is and, you know, messy. It's still an amazing experiment, and it, it never ceases to amaze me what what, what we have here. Um, and they looked at that history and they created um, a design persona that's following the same design persona that I kind of puzzled out as I was working on uh, Mailchimp and, and you know the brand personality there. Uh, they followed the same template and created um, a, a personality called Eleanor uh, uh, Eleanor Franklin and. Obviously, Franklin is a, is a hat tip to Ben Franklin and Eleanor. They chose it as kind of a strong name, but it's uh, also a, a hat tip to Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. Um, and they define these traits of, you know, it's trustworthy um, and it's this, but it's not that. And then they created sample copy, um, and they're using that to uh, define some of the design decisions. Like, what type would we use, you know, to communicate the idea of trustworthy? Uh, would that be a sans serif typeface or serif typeface? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the colors we would use? And uh, by choosing particular colors, how does that relate to the political climate right now? So they're really, really thinking carefully about personality and how it can avoid a lot of the, you know, the bad feelings that people, the baggage that people bring to governmental interactions and try to soften it and make it feel a little bit more personal without being patronizing
0: right yeah that's really cool the i I read the article and was kind of fascinated with how this is going to (laughs) go i'll be i hope they continue to write as they as they roll things out and and release and iterate um it'll be interesting
1: it's funny it seems like people don't think about persona as much as as you would think that they do that they sort of fall into you know okay we're creating a you know a, a mail system and mail systems need to be reliable and there's a whole lot of moving parts so let's pick a very you know corporate persona and that's sort of the kind of the default settings for for a lot of companies and so i really like this idea of uh Getting creative with the persona and and kind of rethinking the persona from from the beginning.
2: Yeah, the idea with design personas is just to answer the question: If this product were a person, who would it be? Um, and and trying to make that an actual person. So for for Mailchimp, we know it's Freddie von Chimpenheimer and we have a visual representation. For MyGov, it's uh, Eleanor Franklin, and they have a real photo of of what this person looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they've defined these traits and and so forth, and they're designing to that. Um, so uh, having that as a reference, it's kind of like your beacon on the hill of, okay, this is what this person would do. Uh, what would my persona do in this situation, and what would they not do? It helps you define some boundaries.
0: Yeah, it also, when, it's interesting with user user focused design sort of coming into its own to where it's very you know it's almost more of a given that people understand user focused design now i feel like design personas and in, in this kind of approach cr- create the possibility for relationship as opposed to being completely focused on the user uh being focused on the entity and the and the user they're speaking to and how that transaction happens Yeah.
2: I mean, that's, that's exactly what it's about is about creating a relationship because with, with user experience design, we do a lot of research and, uh, we do contextual interviews and we talk to users and then we create, uh, these personas that say, these are our archetypal customers we're trying to design for. Mm -hmm. That, That helps us understand what we're making and make something that's relevant to our audience. So that is answering the question, who are they? But we, Rarely say ask ourselves who are we, mm-hmm. and if you think about how human to human relationships are formed, it's by understanding who you are and who they are, and where your your uh, you know connections will bring you together, and your differences will will tear you apart. Um, so that's uh, you know that's the whole point of of creating uh, a design persona,
0: and a lot of. Getting to that in design processes, um, I I think it can feel as though this is just the magic that designers do. Um, This is the thing that Aaron Walter and his guys there at MailChimp... Uh, You know, they're creative people and they just come up with these fantastic ideas and that's just that's they wake up in the morning, they make some toast and then out pops an idea and then they go and eat some lunch and out pops the next idea and they just keep throwing these ideas at the screen and we're all loving it. Um, But in my experience, at least design and almost any creative endeavor is not so simple as just, well, I just happen to be a person who that's what this, this these things flow out of. And I'm curious, is like getting to personality in your experience, have you found that there are particular ways that you work with your team? Um, I, I realize that the personality has been developed, you know, for a while now at MailChimp, but as you've helped others do this, um, have you uncovered particular th- things that help move things along to help creativity happen, help creative ideas, help uh, pop up for how you communicate the personality, how you actually discover personality and those kinds of things.
2: Well, I think that there is, uh, there's a mythology around the, you know, creative people. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you, you just accurately described it, that it's, you know, things it's, it's spontaneous that things just explode. I think that creativity is work. Um, it 's not uh, a moment; a moment of creativity is the culmination of uh, you know hours and days and months and years of toil and uh, thinking and experimenting and failing. Um, I feel like creativity in the creative process is uh, more about uh, it's more it's more about the the calisthenics and the journey you know like the this exercise of trying to make things mm-hmm. um than it is about the f- the final product of the thing that you know comes out and everyone sees and enjoys um you know if if you're if you're a designer or you're a painter i actually studied painting uh in undergrad and graduate school and i would do this this uh, this sort of exercise or research process, where, you know, I think every every creative person has experienced the the blank canvas or the blank page moment, where you're looking at the void and you're just scared about what am I supposed to create here? I, I don't know where to start. Um, and people can be super creative if they've got something to pull from. They can they can be their most creative when they've got something to pull from. So. What I would do as a painter, I would go to the library, um, and this is before, you know, World Wide Web, where you've got access to everything at your fingertips. I'd go to the library, I'd find a bunch of old science books or books that I thought were kind of interesting. And I would just make you know hundreds of copies, Xeroxed copies, and then I brought my three-hole punch, uh, and then I would punch holes in them and I'd put them in three ring, massive three ring binders, and take those back to my studio. So then during weekdays when i was in my studio making uh paintings i could just go to the binder pull out any image as a starting point and say what's this what, what what's the meaning behind this image how does this relate to this other thing um and that always got me through where i didn't have the blank canvas moment i always had some starting point
0: mm-hmm.
2: but it's about doing the 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 work ahead of time it's about right. being you know, having the calisthenics that exercise um yeah. to keep keep going.
0: Yeah, people operate well with with constraints. I think many creatives have difficulty creating their own constraints.
1: Um, I really like this idea of uh focusing more on the journey, the creative journey. Uh it it makes the failures not feel like failures, right? Because that's just yeah. sort of part of part of the experience. However, my question for you is how do you handle that? Like that sort of implies um, what I call like research and development time. Like just I picture like scientists in a lab just sort of doing experiments. But we all know like there are oftentimes deadlines and things that sort of need to happen, you know, soon. How how do you sort of manage those two things together?
2: Um, I think – so for us, I think we do it by having short cycles. Um, and this is something we're still kind of looking at what we do as a company and what we do in small teams and stuff. But w- the one thing that I see is we have these short cycles, development cycles, creative cycles. There's always uh, there's always a deadline. And um, so you basically do what you can with what you've got. There's always a mm-hmm. MacGyver mentality of you know i don't i don't have everything uh i don't have a week to work on this i have a couple hours friday afternoon what could i get done in that time frame Mm -hmm. um but also so so there's that but then there's also the you know going back to this whole calisthenic idea of making things and uh when you make something not not feeling like it has to be good um I feel like that's one of the, the, the worst enemies of, of creative people is feeling like what they make has to be really good uh, because when you're afraid uh, that you're going to fail, you stop trying. And when you stop trying, you can't succeed. So it's the creative process is about repetitively trying, repetitively failing, and from that like 90% failure, you get this... Small piece of success, yeah. But it's also about reshaping your idea of what failure is. Uh, and, and just to give you an, a, a concrete, pretty amazing example of, of that idea, um, Jack Dorsey, uh, who's you know the the guy that came up with the idea of Twitter, mm-hmm. he was uh, really fascinated as uh, a kid with the idea of dispatch. Um, like a central dispatch that's telling, let's say, cabs or ambulances or first responders, I'm here and I'm going over over there. Um, so he's fascinated with that on a personal level, too. Um, he was living in New York and he was working for a company called Odeo, which uh, was would help you collect and organize your favorite podcasts. Right. Uh, so Jack Dorsey. I yeah, yeah, I loved Odeo, and I, you know, I've always loved podcasting. But um, he created in 2004 uh, just a little prototype, a proof of concept of this dispatch thing. So um, he basically hooked up a, an SMS gateway to a small mailing list. Um, he went out to uh, Golden Gate Park in San Francisco and sent a message to a group of, you know, it's probably a dozen friends or something on this mailing list and he sent it from his phone via sms it said i'm at golden gate park right now and his friends were just like uh i got your message i didn't really know what to do with that um why do i really (laughs) care where you are and what you're doing and he's like okay well i I like this idea i made it and i want to try it and see what happens and i guess this is a failure no one really wants this did
0: it send them an email
2: he did yeah yeah uh and so he uh He put it on the shelf, basically. Um, He made the thing, had this idea, this fascination, um, had this impulse to make it. It was a failure. He put it on the shelf. Uh, Fast forward uh, a couple years, and um, Apple has a big announcement that they've uh, got this huge new upgrade to iTunes that integrates podcasting. So now you can collect all your podcasts in one spot, sync them over to your um, iPod, and enjoy them uh, at will. And basically that day Odeo was just like we're doomed this is the end of our company because this big fish just ate our lunch and mm-hmm. we're not going to be able to recover we've got to totally rethink what we're doing so uh ev williams actually sent out an email to the company that's like guys this is not a good day for us does anyone have an idea of what we can do now and jack dorsey said well I have an idea about something I was playing with. And he had a sketch on uh, like a legal pad Mm -hmm. um, for status. Um, It was like stat.us was the the URL. And this little prototype he built. And he showed that to Evan Williams. And he's like, this is kind of interesting. Why don't you take two weeks off and see if you can flesh this out more? Uh, So they, they found that that was pretty interesting and intriguing. And that became Twitter. Uh, which obviously worked out pretty well. The point is here that you know if if this idea of failure um, had hampered or, or changed the way that Jack Dorsey saw what he was making. Like, I have this idea of something that I think would be cool. I don't know how this works and how it solves a problem for a lot of people, but I find this interesting. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
2: if he didn't follow that impulse to make and feel okay that this is a failure. He wouldn't have that thing to pull from later on when it was necessary At you know, to, to make something. We need this creative uh, idea at this moment. You can't have these spontaneous creative ideas if you're not making stuff, failing uh, – or, or not failing, just making and putting a thousand things on a shelf. Sure. If you have a shelf full of, of things to pull from, it's easy to have spontaneous creativity. And yep. I think that's that's – you know, the most creative people, the designers, musicians, whoever that we admire, that's what they're doing. That's their secret is that they've always got something to pull from. They're they're never staring at a blank canvas.
1: Well, or even looking at things as black and white as failure or success. I mean, right. You know, Jack sent this message to his friends and they had the same reaction as as most people's friends did when they joined Twitter early on, which was, why do I care where you are? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and, you know, and and. You know, sometimes there's not that resonance uh, with an idea and some people could go away and say that's a failure. Um, but I think that if you sort of allow things to kind of live in this gray area, like, well, maybe we could turn this into something that that people would react to. Um, it, you know, I, I like this idea of sort of stacking up ideas um, and sort of having a big, you know, book full of ideas to pull from.
0: Yeah, it's that everything's a remix concept where you can't remix what you don't have, and so and you usually you don't remix things that are already a thing because they worked. So,
2: yeah, interesting. You know what I think that is, and it kind of blows my mind. But if you ask people who's their favorite artist, uh, they're going to say something like uh, Monet or Degas or Van Gogh. And I think for a lot of people when they think of creativity and art, uh, they have a frozen snapshot of the turn of the twentieth, nineteenth to twentieth century
1: mm-hmm. artists
2: and the way that modernism worked and the way that postmodernism works, uh, and then you know, postmodernism, in our era, it's like there's there's no new idea necessarily. There's so many, you know, we we've got so many great ideas at our fingertips and then we look at those and we rethink them. Right. But so many people they have this romantic idea of, you know, artist in a studio in a vacuum uh just s- sort of having this this love affair with with their brilliant ideas conjured out of out of nowhere. Yeah. Say that it, it It works. I don't think it's ever worked that way, but I think that people don't understand our times quite as well as we would think they do.
0: So, you live in Athens, I believe, right? Uh, And I I know uh, several of the Mailchimp UX team through. We have a great web community here in Atlanta. I live here. Do you do you work remotely, or do you work? here in Atlanta with the, the team here.
2: I, I work, um, mo- uh, part of the week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, I work, um, in Atlanta and then Thursday and Friday I work in Athens.
0: Okay. It, have you, what are some things you've discovered f- about how to manage and scale creative processes across distributed teams, uh, people working together, but not always in the same room, uh, it's something that I wrestle through a lot uh, being that Lullabot is a fully distributed company as well. Um just kind of curious your thoughts on maintaining creativity and maintaining output and all those kinds of things when, when you are separated and when you're together.
2: Um. Uh, I don't know that I have good answers for that, but I think that, to whatever degree you can facilitate cross-pollination of ideas, um, that is going to be very beneficial. Um, and what I mean by that is people that are working on different things that aren't necessarily on the same team,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, obviously it's important for team members to communicate, this is what I'm working on, and, you know, here are the ideas I have, but if you can get more cross-pollination of different teams that aren't necessarily working on the same things, um, You start to discover really cool ideas um, and you start to get a fresh perspective on what you're working on. Um, We're just building this new design space right now that will have all of user experience, uh, the marketing team and design lab in one spot. And collectively we have content people, we've got uh, a lot of uh, front end developers, we've got um, designers and illustrators. We've got design researchers, you know, people that are doing a lot of different things that come from lots of different backgrounds. Some of them are very quantitative thinkers, and some of them are very um, qualitative or, you know, design thinkers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're intentionally designing this space to be very open and uh, situated where you, you get a, you mix, you intentionally mix people up of different skill sets, so they talk. To Start to share ideas and look at things in a different way and maybe challenge each other in different ways, Uh, which obviously that works great for an in-house type of scenario. And when you're at a distance, um, you know, I I know there are tools for staying connected and stuff, but I I guess I still believe that sooner or later, human beings need to be in the same room together. Right helps to get people together on a semi-regular basis for if it's a retreat or Mm -hmm. like some kind of a get-together uh it can be really helpful to just work through ideas really quickly
0: yeah that's that's part of the magic that we found at lullabot is finding ways to to keep all the disciplines working together all the time and aware of one another, as well as just having to regularly get people together face-to-face. You just can't seem to completely get away from that (laughs) without losing benefits. So um, you, you also uh, were a teacher for a long time, uh, a college professor, I believe, or you taught at colleges at least from what I, from what what I remember. Um, do you find how, do you miss that and and or do you find that so much of being sort of a ux lead or a creative director or leading design process
2: is actually a lot like teaching um so i i don't miss it i thought i would really miss it um i really liked teaching it it taught me a lot um because i was teaching a lot of different subjects i had to research and really learn this stuff mm-hmm. quickly on short cycles cuz i was teaching on a quarter system um and then i would teach and learn as i went what worked and what didn't i was also doing a lot of freelance at the time so what i learned from freelance projects kind of came back into the classroom mm-hmm. classroom things uh informed what I was doing in, in freelance work. So I found that that was a really important cycle for me to be able to learn about something and learn it so well that I can do it. And then I can tell someone else how to do it. Um, and what I do today, although I'm not in a classroom, um, I learn by writing actually, uh, you know, and writing is a form of teaching. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I also speak a lot at at conferences, um, and between the speaking and the writing, I, I I feel like those two things are very similar. Um, that feels like the teaching aspect that then informs, I, it helps me, forces me to sum up my my philosophies and my value system for design. Mm-hmm. So when I go back to being you know in the office and working in the studio with other people. Um, I've got a clear understanding of what I'm doing. Right. So it's kind of a symbiotic cycle.
0: Do you think that, that all all designers, all all uh, creatives should find avenues for writing about, teaching about what they
2: do? Um, my perspective, yes. I know that's not always realistic for a lot of people, but... Mm-hmm. I feel like the more people can talk about their work, the better work they make. And I mean, let's 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 be honest: designers that can't talk about their work, that can't defend their ideas, that can't explain the thought process uh, that went into it, um, go be a painter because that's yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> You're gonna have a hard time. Yep. And it,
2: you know, I don't want to hire any designer that can't talk about their work uh, because design is an inherently communicative discipline yes you have to communicate with people to learn about what you're going to make then you make it and then you communicate what you made yep
0: when i'm hiring designers i i usually am trying to dig through and find things that they've written to me being able to write well is is being able to think well and it's almost impossible to design well if you can't do those things yeah i agree with that So last question, uh, you are a self-confessed coffee snob. And usually if you like use the word snob about yourself, you must really, really be into it. So I'm kind of curious about, uh, what is your personal, uh,
2: setup for creating the perfect cup of coffee? Uh, I like, I really like espresso. Uh I mean, I do like, uh, doing, you know, stuff like pour overs and uh, different other methods but for the most part I really just like the the history and the nerdery of uh, espresso and I know it's a little bit cliche for a designer to be into coffee but so I'm not um, you know if I'm if I'm at the barbershop or I'm at a party I could talk a little bit about football but not very well sports <laughs> very bad at it. I don't really know a whole lot about it I don't have the capacity to be really interested in that i'm not into like super nerdy technical cars or anything like that for me coffee is kind of like it's kind of a little it's it's my it's my bro talk you know it's my nerd Mm -hmm. uh that it's about technical equipment it's about chemistry it's about culinary arts right it's it's uh it just mirrors what I love about design, which uh, it's about being analytical. It's, It's playing a game of chess while making a painting. And coffee does the same thing where, you know, it's culinary arts. There's this subjectivity and curiosity and experimentation that's built into it. And there's like super technical precision that goes into that as well. Right. So I have a, you know, big fancy Italian made, you know, steel constructed uh espresso machine at home a professional grinder and Do
0: you roast your own beans
2: i don't do that and yeah. that's something that i i would like to do at some point uh my wife is a potter and she has a kiln room with all the venting and stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> but i've never tried it um but i think it's fun i mean i love coffee um I think it's you know super sophisticated and interesting to explore, and just never gets old. <laughs> I agree. I love a good cup of
0: coffee uh, i'm I'm also an espresso junkie, but i don't I don't have quite the setup that you do so but I envy it well, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today aaron um once again uh feel free to go to his website it's uh, AaronWalter.com A-A-R-R-O-N it's a bit of an unusual he's a a special version of Aaron Um, and also MailChimp.com check out his work Um, it's a great product we use it here at Lullabot Um, if you're on our mailing list uh, it's sent with MailChimp and um, also his book Designing for Emotion be sure to check that out as well Uh, thanks again Aaron
2: thank you guys
1: Great Thanks, there